zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Prince of the City, released August 26, 1981. It was written by J. Presson Allen and Sidney Lumet, based on the novel of the same name by Robert Daly, directed by Sidney Lumet, and released by Warner Brothers. In 1978, Robert Daly's novel, Prince of the City, was published. It tells the story of a corrupt cop who is brought in by a group called the Chase Commission, to weed out other corrupt cops on the force. The character of Daniel Ciello, played by Treat Williams, is based on the real-life detective Bob Lucci, who served as an informant in the indictments of 52 corrupt police officers. As we discussed in our review of Blowout, the rights were quickly acquired by Orion for half a million dollars, who attached director Brian De Palma and screenwriter David Rabe. Orion had just locked in a two-picture deal with Travolta and intended to cast him in the lead, but when he left for Urban Cowboy, the project was offered to Robert De Niro and then Al Pacino, who both passed. Bob Lucci, who inspired the lead character Danny Cello, actually worked directly with Frank Serpico, so it's a bit of an odd choice to have Al Pacino play both of them. I still think I like all of those casting choices better. A hundred percent. Orion was unhappy with Rabe's draft, so when they turned it down, De Palma quit in solidarity to begin work on what would become Blowout, which we also mentioned in that review recycled full scenes from Daly's novel, with Travolta's backstory involving his work with an anti-corruption agency called the King Commission in place of this film's Chase Commission. Didn't that movie also have like a battery pack burnout? It did. Burn that whole scene is directly out of this. Upon reading the novel, screenwriter J. Presson Allen found it to be an ideal project for Sidney Lumet and made it known to Warner Brothers that if Orion ever dropped the project, she and Lumet would be interested in collaborating on a film version. De Palma would get his revenge a couple years later when Lamette was unceremoniously dropped during pre-production on Scarface over creative differences, and De Palma was invited to take over the project. Days before Lamette was set to sign on to another project, the rights to Prince of the City were suddenly available again. Allen originally intended only to produce, as she had last season on It's My Turn, because of the story's non-linear structure, but Lumet only agreed to direct in the event she wrote the script. The same writer-director team had paired the previous year for the first wide release of the 1980s and thusly our first episode, Just Tell Me What You Want, starring Alan King and Ali McGraw. It was her first adaptation of a true story with living subjects, and so Alan sat down to speak in person with nearly everyone mentioned in the book, and was even able to supplement her research with the actual recordings made from Bob Lucci's various wiretap encounters. That sounds like a lot of work. Right? I would do it from transcripts, probably, not full-on tapes. I'd, I'd probably do it from tapes. <laughs> Her first draft was a 240-page script written in 30 days because a lot of the dialogue was taken verbatim from existing tapes. It was expected to run in the neighborhood of three hours, and the studio was a hard pass until the writer-director team promised to keep the budget under $10 million, eventually landing at a total of $8.6 million and still falling half a mil short of paying for itself in the box office. Lamette had wanted to revisit the cop drama after concerns that his earlier film Serpico treated the police officers two-dimensionally. To rectify this, Lumet inexplicably cast Treat Williams. 
a relative unknown in the lead after spending several weeks with him and doing multiple table reads. Williams immersed himself in the role by spending a month observing police work firsthand at the 23rd Precinct in New York City and joining the officers on real drug busts. Williams even spent time living with Bob Lucci, on whom his character is based. The film had the full cooperation of various law enforcement agencies and approved of the final cut enough that the DEA even requested copies for use in training exercises. Hmm. I don't know which parts you would be using for training, but they did that. The, the part where you don't snitch on your fellow cops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is what happens, Larry. We open on Treat Williams as Danny Cello waking from a nightmare in the dark with his wife. He thought he heard someone at the door and his wife gently coaxes him back to sleep. And then I think we jump back in time. Yeah. After seeing the movie, I go, yeah. oh, okay, this scene was... Next, we get inserts of paperwork for NYPD's Special Investigative Unit, the SIU. We see ID cards for several detectives. Kenny Marino as Detective Dom Bando. Richard Ferrangi as Detective Joe Marinaro. Don Billet as Detective Bill Mayo. Jerry Orbach as Detective Gus Levy. And finally, Treat as Detective Daniel Cello, and the title appears above this card. Don't they call him Cielo? It's spelt Cielo, but they just say Cello most of the time. And then I had captions on and my brain just said that every time they said Cello. <laughs> we dissolve to the Coochie Fritos Bakery in the Bronx where Cello sips a coffee and waits for an informant to arrive. A man enters and takes the stool beside Cello and directs his attention to a phone booth across the street. He drops a little baggie in the man's pocket on his way out and after he leaves, the informant trades the dollar bill Cello left as a tip for a coin from his pocket and even finishes the coffee left in the cup. So this guy's hard up for money. Later, a car pulls up beside Cello to announce an upcoming meeting at 3 p.m. Cello steps into the phone booth and relays the 3 o'clock message back to the station where it is passed further to Jerry Orbach's detective Gus Levy, who seems to be out at a dinner club with comedian Alan King playing himself. Yeah. Because he calls him Alan here. If you'll recall, he was the lead of the previous Sidney Lumet film. I recall. Was he the lead? Yeah. Well, I mean... There were there were two leads, yeah. but he's one yeah. of the leads, Co -lead. yes. Co-lead. Sorry. <laughs> Gus passes the 3 o'clock announcement, another call down the phone chain to Detective Marinero, who calls another number. A phone rings in an apartment crowded with people, and when someone answers, Marinero hangs up without saying a word. Another man in a boiler room seems to have ears in the apartment and hears the call come in and immediately hang up. Boiler room dude untaps the phone line. This is Bill Mayo, we will learn. All the SIU detectives get in a car together and stake out the handoff location at 3 o'clock. When the participants move out of sight, the detectives follow on foot. They close in on the deal from all angles. Windows and stairwells are all covered. Levy and Cello kick in the door, and folks scatter inside with their briefcases. But there's nowhere to go, and they're all quickly arrested. Levy even kicks one of the guys out the window onto the fire escape where he appears to die, or at least stop moving. I thought he just bled out immediately. Yeah, because he goes right through the glass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometime later, all the men from the unit are in a barbershop together passing cigars around. At the station house later, they walk all the perps from the Columbia drug bust on a long chain into the courthouse together, and then we cut to a celebratory dinner that night. We get inserts of folders labeled Chase Commission DOJ, and we see an ID for Richard Capolino and Brooks Page. A chapter title appears that reads, Nobody Cares About Me But My Partners. I, I didn't like this chapter break yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it's just usually a line of dialogue that we'll hear in the next section. Yeah, but it, I don't know, it's unnecessary. Agreed. There's a lot of unnecessary stuff here. <laughs> Cello is waiting outside District Attorney Capolino's office and he's called in. 
He informs Cello that he's heading the Chase Commission in search of police corruption, but Cello seems fairly well informed on their mandate. The meeting is prefaced with an assurance that Cello is not here as a suspect. Cello takes a seat in front of Capolino's desk and the chair breaks under him. I have to assume this was an intentional trap to throw Cello off balance because otherwise I don't know why it happens. I guess just yeah. to show that this is a shabby office at the no, start. I, it's definitely a power play. But he doesn't seem like that guy for the rest of the movie. Capolino seems That's very straight laced. I, I think maybe maybe the point was just they didn't have a lot of money when they got started. And so they couldn't even afford functional chairs yet. I, d I still take it as a tactic. Yeah. Capolino mentions the moniker that Cello's unit goes by, the Princes of the City, because they are essentially untouchables on the narcotics team. Capolino makes it clear he's looking for information on detectives within Cello's special investigative unit. Cello seems resistant at first to turn on his friends, instead hinting at dirt on feds, but Capolino sends him away with a business card and an open invitation to chat whenever. We cut to a backyard barbecue at the Cello estate and a crowd of insufferable cop characters tell bad jokes back and forth and laugh gratingly. Word travels through the party that Cello's brother is here under the influence of an unknown narcotic. Cello says he'll take care of it, but his father is worried that he'll be too harsh on his brother Ronnie. The brothers are quickly shouting at each other. Ronnie alleges that the cops outside are just as awful as any of his addict friends, and Detective Cello keeps slapping his brother in the chest and pushing him across the room. This obviously isn't the first take either, because there's a giant Ronnie-shaped dent in the wall behind him yeah. <laughs> as he's backed into a corner. I feel like maybe you use a different angle for the next take. Ronnie makes the, even by 1981, tired, obvious argument that cops are just criminals with badges, and it's all very on the nose. Ronnie shouts out the window at the cops in the backyard, and Detective Cello tosses his brother across the room. Their father enters, startled by the commotion, and Cello offers a half-hearted apology on his way out. His father makes it clear that he sides with Ronnie and thinks cops are the bad guys. Your brother's right, Danny. He ain't blind. And neither am I. We cut to Cello meeting with Capolino in what looks like his home office, and they're enjoying a meal together. Cello still feels guilty and denies any wrongdoing, despite not having been accused of anything yet. Capolino makes his first accusation, but doesn't level it at Cello directly. Is it common practice to sell narcotics in the narcotics division? Your information from... Village Voice, New York Magazine, for Christ's sake. Cello is so insulted by the question and the allegedly raw steak that he walks out. Later that night, a phone rings on a nightstand in a dark room. Cello's informant from the cafe, now soaked in vomit, is calling for help. He's sick after taking all the drugs Cello paid him with earlier. Even though it's 3 a.m., Cello gets in his car and heads out to help the man. He picks him up on a rainy corner and parks outside the precinct. He approaches another detective in the locker room to ask a favor. Sal. You got something for me? I got a six stool. The man hands over another small baggie but reminds Cello to contribute to the stash on occasion. You have to replace it for me, Danny. I got stoolies too, you know? When he passes off the drugs to his informant, the man has a complete meltdown when they are not the drugs he expected. They decide to head to Sai's place. Presumably, Detective Cello intended to simply buy drugs here, but he left his wallet at home. His new plan is to arrest whoever's coming out of the place and give that person's drugs to his informant. He ends up having to chase the man through the rain for a while. His friend even joins the chase to help. When Danny Cello finally catches up with someone he seems to know as Jose, he tackles the man to the floor as his informant screams for blood, and Danny socks him hard in the face multiple times. The makeup here on Jose's face is quite disturbing, and the man looks legitimately roughed up. He says he bought five bags and begs Danny not to take it all. Danny pays off the first guy with two bags, and he has now traded one messed up junkie for another. Jose vomits all over himself, and Danny promises to drive him home to his girlfriend, Jeannie. 
When Jeannie answers the door, we see she's being played by a young Cynthia Nixon. Jose gives her his medicine, and she takes it into a bathroom to dose herself. When she seems to be taking a long time, Jose follows her in there to find that she's taken everything he brought and left him nothing for the night. He starts slapping her around, and Danny just watches because the filmmaker wants us to hate him for some reason. We cut to Danny meeting with Capolino again. Danny is asked to confirm that he has a connection to the mob through his cousin, and it has assisted in their work. Yeah, Nick. My father's sister, her Nick's with the Columbos. Listen, those guys don't tell me anything they don't want me to know. Danny's upset to learn that another agent of the anti-corruption unit, Brooks Page, is on the way here. When he's seated across from the two anti-corruption officials, he gets extremely defensive and begins shouting. His argument boils down to, lawyers are more corrupt than police and they get paid better too. Danny loudly declares that cops can't trust anyone but other cops. But nobody cares about me but my partner! You understand that? Nobody! It's worth pointing out, and I've chosen here because this is one of the most egregious examples, that all of the acting Treat Williams does in the whole film is very outrageous stage acting. Yeah. He's mugging all over the place. He can't help but swing his arms wildly with everything that he says. He's playing to the back of the theater, and the other characters have so little response to what he's doing, it makes him look ridiculous every time. Maybe that's the point. Maybe it's supposed to seem like bad acting because he's supposed to be a bad liar. But or, it seems like we're supposed to hate this character from the beginning. Yeah. I. It's also, I guess, just to make him seem like he's more intense. Like he's just super passionate but it comes off as as hokey and weird yeah Uh, a lot of the performances in this movie are very weird but this is the worst one and the film is centered on him yeah even detective lucci on whom the character is based was annoyed by williams overacting and this is the guy who williams lived with briefly to get the character down after he gets out all of his shouts danny sits down and cries on the couch immediately after bragging about how he and his partners beat up criminals and take their money he complains that those same criminals are basically taking from him in the form of his guilt for doing it poor guy these people we take from own us the writing only gets weirder and more uncomfortable from here i know what you guys think of us but we're the only thing between you and the jungle And suddenly he's shouting awkwardly loud again as we dissolve to the next morning. Like, it felt weird that the energy is going up at the end of the scene as we're fading Mm -hmm. out. The conversation has barely evolved from where we left off, except that now Danny's voice is ragged from shouting all night, and he seems to be admitting to less egregious crimes now. I I could barely understand a word he was saying. Yeah. But he he does admit here to having paid informants in drugs for information, which for some reason we pretend like he didn't admit to for the next two acts of the movie. Yep. Sure, I give my informants heroin. They got nobody but me and they're sick and they're helpless and I feel responsible for them. He follows up that point by admitting that the law doesn't distinguish between that and selling drugs, which is a felony. He claims that they're just as bad as him because they aren't arresting him for a known felony, which is also a felony. And I really wanted them to just arrest this fucking guy here and roll credits. But no, we have two hours and 20 minutes left. Danny lays out some ground rules required for him to cooperate. He won't rat on his partners. Later that morning, he's having breakfast with his family and his voice has made a miraculous recovery. Even though in the ensuing hours, he has apparently shared the entire deal with his wife, who is furious with him for taking sides with the anti-corruption unit against his friends. Do you guys recall the last time a cop's wife got mad that her husband couldn't just look the other way and keep being a corrupt cop? 
They divorced because of it. Nighthawks? No, earlier than that. Those two divorced because his job was too dangerous, much further back. And it caused a custody battle between them. Oh. Oh, um, I cite. No, not, not. What that kind of a custody battle, not <laughs> no witness protection custody battle. What was oh, that okay. movie actually called? Not I see. hide in plain hide sight. Hide in plain sight. Thank you. <laughs> or just in plain sight, right? In no, plain it's sight. called hide in plain sight. Was it hide in plain sight? Yeah. Um, you liked it a lot. You liked it the most. The the one with the the tearing through the building poster. That's right. What was that one called? That one was called the Juggler. No, Night of the Juggler. Night of the Juggler. That's go. correct. Between Mr. Richard and I, we'll actually remember everything we talked about. The, on this the show. parents of the kidnapped girl <laughs> separated because he worked for the police and he ended up ratting on everyone because everybody was corrupt. And she said he should have just not done that and kept his money. And Dan Hedaya didn't appreciate it either and went fucking nuts on him. <laughs> Danny promises he's not going to testify against his partners and she basically tells him he's an idiot for believing that. This guy, Capolino, he's going to force you to hurt your friends. People who've been good to you. Always when I hear you or Gus or Joe, any of the guys, you always say nothing's worse than to be a... A rat. A rat is when they catch you and make you inform. Nobody caught me. This is my setup. This is my action. And I'm never going to hurt my partners. It'll happen. How are you going to live with that? Isn't that worse? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I I feel like it's weird that people don't judge him more when he says that. Because it's like, oh, you're doing this for literally fucking no reason? You're not even like, there's not even a risk? You could have just stayed with us and you would have been fine, but you chose not to? Yeah, because you bring up a very good point, Jesse. Because nowhere in his deal does he ask for immunity. Right. Like that's they what ask be the for a list of things that he did wrong, and he just kind of assumes that means he won't be charged for them. Yeah, that would be the first thing I ask. I, w- I would say, in the end of all this, I want total immunity. Right. Well, and I feel like the whole, like the whole point of this entire thing is, you know, set up by like his dad and his brother, and like his feeling guilty for like being hypocritical, right? And yet. Like, we don't come back to that concept. Yeah, it's weird because in the structure of the movie, like, looking at the script, we should like him the most because he's the good guy doing the right thing. He was the bad guy at the start of the film, and for no apparent reason. There's not an, there's not an obvious catalyst for why he suddenly decided yeah. that he was going to go good. I, I well, assume I in real life... I think it is supposed life, to be that father and brother moment where they kind of... But but I don't think that they hit that because he doesn't right. ever talk about that guilt that he but, felt yeah. after that. But also his father has no qualms with the rest of his family being like mafioso types or his son being a part of this drug-addicted yeah. underworld. Like... Nobody is clean in this family, so yeah. it doesn't make sense. He's not, like, appealing to a greater justice here. This should have been Jerry Orbach's movie. He's the oldest of the group. He should be the one with the most guilt that's weighing on him. But he doesn't, because he's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Danny rings Capolino's buzzer in the middle of the night to announce he is officially accepting the job, but he will never rat on anyone who has ever been his partner at any time. We cut back to the station where the special investigative unit is being broken up so they can surround Danny with new cops that he's comfortable ratting on. The guys reminisce on the time they've spent together and force themselves to laugh at cop jokes, which as we all know are the antithesis of comedy. 
They notice one of the guys is taking caffeine tablets to help him stay alert, and they laugh about it for 30 straight seconds, but forget to share any conceivable punchline. They're just like, no dos. <laughs> He's got no dos. Well, they're, guys. they're laughing at him because they they put guys behind bars and steal their their drugs, which are way stronger than no-dos. And they're like, like, why aren't you just doing hard drugs? <laughs> I just I just don't get why this is a punchline even at all. Like, so the guy has no-dos. Who cares? Like, what if it was Excedrin? Would they be laughing just as hard? Why aren't you doing heroin? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sometime later, the Chase Commission officially opens a center of operations in an abandoned post office. Before Danny gets started confessing anything, he pulls Capolino aside to warn him that if anything happens to Danny's family, it will also happen to Capolino's family. <laughs> Are you threatening me? Absolutely. Your family will be completely safe, Dan. Nobody's going to get hurt. Good. We can both breathe easier. This is not the best way to start a partnership. Well, we're not partners yet. The beginning of the process is for Danny to inform them up front of anything illegal he has done so they don't get blindsided with charges somewhere down the line. Danny claims that in 11 years with the SIU, he has committed only three potential felonies. He begins with a joke about how long it's been since his last confession, but this is an extremely common tactic to trap a subject. In the Church of Scientology, you have to submit in writing a document of the worst things you've ever done, and the church is famous for wielding those confessions against you if you ever consider leaving. Confession at other churches works largely the same way, because if a priest knows every sin you've ever committed, you might feel too guilty to leave. While it seems like these men are just trying to cover all their bases as far as legal defenses go, they can obviously lean on these confessions to force Danny to do whatever they want down the line. Yeah. Again, immunity. Right. The first crime Danny gives up is basically a non-crime. A case against a mobster was already going to be thrown out because they didn't have enough to indict him, but Danny went to the guy and offered the case to be thrown out in exchange for $10,000. The man paid the bribe, and Danny did nothing because the case was being thrown out anyway. His second confession is super convoluted and peppered with irritating impressions and a lot of forced laughter, but... It seems like maybe they used names they shouldn't have here. Yeah. Because every time Danny says Tiny or Lewis in the story, they sound terribly ADR'd over some previous name. I mean, they must have used something from the transcripts. Yeah. And uh, that they it's like, you can't like, No, you can't we can't mention that. that guy. But it's not like it's a curse word or anything. They're just names that are getting replaced. Right. And it must have been a short name because they used Tiny. Yeah. <laughs> so he's all shook up because his brother Tiny rides on life parole for murder. Sitting duck. Right? The detective wants 75000 in cash or he's going to roll tiny up. Basically, it's the same as the previous case. They lied that they had evidence on a guy and asked for $75,000 to make the evidence disappear. When they offered 7500 instead, they took it and there was no evidence to get rid of. They were just hustling alleged criminals. Capolino and Brooks find these stories way more amusing than they are. When they ask for the detective's name who accepted the pseudo-bribe, Danny clams up, assuring them that they don't have the necessary witnesses or evidence. Aren't you the witness? You're a person. Yeah. You just told us what happened. The third thing is that he accepted a $1,000 gift for connecting one of his extended family mobsters with Detective Logan, but he has no idea what they did after he connected them, which honestly doesn't even seem like it's worth mentioning. Like, I, someone paid me $1,000 to introduce this person to that person. Well, that's not a crime, so you're fine. Well, he's obviously cherry-picking out things that he wants to share. Yeah, but none of these... I don't I don't think you could get in trouble for any of these things because That's he's... That's why he cherry-picked them out to share. But if I were him, I would be saying actual felonies I committed. 
because the whole point of this is that they're going to cover for these things that you say you did. And if you say three things that don't matter at all, that no jury would ever convict you for, well, but then what's the point of getting immunity for just those things? These are probably the only things he could say that didn't also in- implicate all of his buddies. Right. He's committed other crimes by himself, for sure. And also, this one of these three implicated someone else more than him. Well, not his But he partners. just wouldn't share the guy's name. The agents promise Danny that they can essentially acknowledge and erase the crimes he just admitted to, but remind him that if he ever perjures himself on the stand, even once, that it will invalidate all the information he gives. We cut right to Danny getting wired up. He has assigned a couple feds as bodyguards who will be close by at all times. We cut to a bar across town where a police chief gives Danny permission to operate in his precinct and assigns him a man named Edelman as a contact. Or Edelman? I guess he's pronouncing it Edelman. It seems like the chief will get money out of the deal too because he said, it's fine as long as I get my cut. At first I thought that he knew he was undercover with the Chase Commission, but I think he's actually setting up the chief and Edelman as the first corrupt cop victims. Right. Edelman tells Danny that his old friend Rocky Gazzo from the local mob might try to buy his way out of an indictment soon. We see mug shots and paperwork for Rocky Gazzo and Danny's cousin Nick Napoli. Another chapter title reads, It's a game. I love it. Danny goes to see his cousin. He tells Nicky that he'll have to touch base with Edelman about Gazzo's indictment and that he can vouch for the guy. Nicky picks on his cousin for being a cop a little bit, and then we cut to Danny affixing a recording device under his suit in the airline diner bathroom. So why would you pick on your cousin for being a corrupt cop who's using his position within the force to help to you. help you commit yeah. crimes why would you pick on him for that well because mafiosos can't be seen to look friendly with the police and they're typically meeting in his restaurant which is open to the public i guess so i think he just reminds everyone like hey this guy's a cop so that he has coverage if what happens happens which is that this guy starts using people's words against them and he can always say, I fucking told everybody that he was a cop. I've been saying it from the beginning. And he says that later in the movie. Like I never kept it a secret that he was a police officer. I made it very clear to everyone. You don't talk around this guy. If you don't want a cop to hear it, Gazzo shows up to meet with Danny and Edelman and they all leave to go for a ride. We see Danny's entourage follow the car away and we hear them radio back to presumably Capolino and Brooks. Sorry, uh, Capolino and page Brooks is this first name. Yeah, Weird. Brooks Page. Yeah. But he's he refers to him as both. Yeah. This is Agent Harris leaving the diner, trailing the subject. If this scene feels familiar to either one of you, it's because it was basically recycled as the climax of Travolta's backstory in De Palma's blowout earlier this season. But things went very poorly in that version of the scene when the rat's batteries leaked and scorched his skin, giving him away to the corrupt cops he was riding with, who then hung him from the same wire in a public bathroom. Here, he just gets burned, and he's able to hide it well. While they drive, Danny chomps hungrily at a hot dog, and it turns out Treat Williams is one of the many actors who I can't stand listening to with a mouthful of food. (laughs) I won't subject you to any of it here. They park outside a sports arena, and Gazzo says he has to check Edelman for a wire. Danny starts into that whole, how dare you even suggest we would bring a wire to this meeting dialogue that is never believable in any movie, and probably less so in the real world. I feel like... You mean you don't trust me? Should always be a huge red flag to monsters. Mm -hmm. Hey, Danny, I don't know this fucking guy. Well, fuck, Rocky, you know me. Edelman hands Gazzo a pair of envelopes, and then Gazzo brings the men back to the airline diner, and he pays Danny the 10,000 that he owes. That night, we see Mrs. Cello undo the wire straps. I think the battery's leaked. Don't move, Danny. 
As she pulls away the tape, we can see a bad chemical burn right above his pelvis. We cut back to the abandoned post office that is the Chase Commission headquarters, and it's looking much better now. Shelving and desks have been installed, and all the cobwebs have been cleared. Danny hands over the tape of Edelman to Capolino. Later, we see Danny shaving his chest hair so that it hurts less to pull the tape off his ribs. In the span of two or three shots, the single box of tape on Edelman has evolved into a full shelf of boxes. The Chase Commission sets him up with Detective Allegretti on a path to big-time mobster Dave DiBenedetto. We see Danny at a bar with Allegretti, who accuses him of being the cop that's squealing to the Chase Commission. Apparently, the rumor is out on Danny. To discourage the rumor, Danny embraces it. Let's not sit so close to the TV set, okay? I can't get any kind of recording here. Man, that's not funny. When DiBenedetto finally shows up, Danny lies that they have him on tape committing a felony. DiBenedetto doesn't believe the story for a second. Nobody. Nobody wears a wire on me. I can smell him. It's God's truth, Danny. I never seen nothing like it. Danny drops a tape on the table to bluff Mr. DiBenedetto. On his way out, he also calls the mobster a fat fuck, and he doesn't appreciate that. For their next meeting, Danny wears a wire against the advice of the Chase Commission. Because Allegretti felt a little handsy with his greeting, Danny kicks off the conversation by insisting loudly that he isn't wearing a wire and he doesn't appreciate the implied accusation. He tells DiBenedetto that Chase Commission agents wear the wire under their balls and grabs DiBenedetto's hand intending to prove it, but he just gets pissed off. There's literally no reason he would get so angry about this accusation unless he was wearing a wire. These scenes are so poorly written it drives me crazy. Danny's game in all of these undercover scenes is the same. He's as irritating and offensive as possible so that his targets are distracted by how much they hate him and forget that he might be recording everything. Allegretti pitches the deal to Danny. There's a big shot attorney named Blomberg who represents a lot of seedy mobster types. A real Saul Goodman. Apparently he is the target of a case himself on account of subordination of perjury. They want the charges against the attorney dropped so he can go back to representing their big time dealers. When Danny turns in the tape to Capolino and Page, they ask where he hid the wire. You said Allegretti gave you a massage. Where'd you wear a wire? I, I told that fat fuck. Under my balls. <laughs> and they're just like, ah, they just drop it on the ground. It's the tape. I not know, the, I know. Not the mic. <laughs> Why'd you hand me the mic, too? Why did you let me mix my coffee here with your mic? What? Also, the battery's leaked. Yeah. Oh, no. Extra juice. When Danny meets with Blomberg, he learns that the plan is for Danny to steal and discard the transcripts of the cases where Blomberg's witnesses committed perjury. Danny invites Blomberg to make a cash offer for this fix. We cut to Danny and his wife at a movie theater on a date. Inside the lobby, we can see a poster for All the President's Men. Outside is another poster for Ship of Fools. Insanely, DiBenedetto is watching the news as an anchor person says that a local detective is set to testify before the Chase Commission, and while they can't say his name, they are comfortable revealing that it starts with a D. Uh, How does even that get out? For privacy's sake, let's call her Lisa S. No, that's too obvious. Uh, let's say L. Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Why would they risk getting this cop killed before he can testify? Is this anchor person a part of the mafia crime family? I don't know. <laughs> Seems like the news is usually on the policeman's side, so this is just bizarre that they would do this. Somehow, the disastrous timing of the broadcast means that Danny is sent to talk with DiBenedetto and Allegretti without being told that the news has just broadcast his first initial. To them. As soon as he reaches them, Allegretti drags him away forcibly at gunpoint. Danny's tail can hear that he's in trouble, but he's being walked down a one-way street, so they have to circle the block to catch back up with him. 
Danny continues to joke that he's absolutely testifying for the Chase Commission with as much sarcasm as he can muster. They try to manhandle him looking for a wire, but he fights back against it. His tail loses his connection to the audio feed, and De Benedetto and Allegretti talk about killing him with his own gun. Danny notes that his cousin Nick lives right around the corner and will vouch for Danny. I don't understand why these idiots would listen to Danny and ask his cousin if he's a good guy instead yeah. of just finish checking him for a wire. Mm -hmm. He's wearing a wire, you're half checking him, and he's fighting against it for some reason. Finish checking him, open his shirt, done. It's over. But instead they're like, what, your cousin lives around here? Well, that sounds like an unbiased participant in this conversation. Let's go talk to him and see if he thinks you're good. Amazingly, they buy it, and they walk into his cousin's restaurant to ask if he thinks they should kill Danny. Obviously, Nick says no, and they for some reason accept this. It turns out Nick didn't even really vouch for Danny. He just said, you should make sure he's a rat before you kill him, because a lot of people like that guy. Which, in my mind, means, check for a wire, you fucking idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Instead, they interpret Nick's comment as a full-throated endorsement and shake Danny's hand before walking away. They're like, oh, sorry, I guess we have the wrong guy. Nick and Danny stare at each other across the street for a moment, and then we cut to Danny freaking out at a payphone and demanding a face-to-face -face with his handlers at the Chase Commission. At the meeting, he demands local police officers for protection in place of these feds who don't know their way around town. He also needs someone to check on his family to make sure they're okay. Okay, so I got, I'm confused at this. Okay. How can you ask for local cops to protect you when you're snitching on cops? You have to bring more cops in that know what's going on. So the local, I don't, I feel like they only bring one cop in, yeah, based on this request. Okay. But the guy knows what they're up to. Yeah, I'm like, but like, even the request to have it be local cops doesn't make sense to me. Like, why would he do that, knowing that? You're yeah, because you don't want this information to get out no, either. Right, right. You don't yeah, want the more people you bring in, the more risk it is to you. You don't want any other cops to know what you're doing. But I think he cares more about getting killed by mobsters because these feds are idiots than he does about his friends finding out that he's turned on them. I guess. For some reason. I feel oh. like I, uh, he should be just as concerned of either thing. Are there no local federal officers? It's I don't know. It seems like... city. Yeah, it's, it's New York. There has to be people around here that know the streets. And also, what could anyone else... Like, what would local police have done if you were getting walked down a one-way street, just drive down it anyway? Well, get out of your car and go. But then that... that then that, that immediately gives up that right, you're then, working then with someone. Everything you've done is yeah. is for for naught, you know. You, yeah, what happened was really everything. the best case scenario. Yeah. But I think maybe that's his point. Yeah. Is that they care more about maintaining the case mm -hmm. than protecting him. Yeah. When no one answers the phone at Danny's home, he calls Edelman at the precinct and lies about where he is. Edelman offers to check in on the family for him. Edelman cares more about me than you guys. I'm putting him in jail. Danny has a crisis of faith when he realizes that today he was saved by Edelman and Nick, two guys who the commission would rather see behind bars. They advise Danny to take a 10-day vacation. This is another thing that I don't quite understand. It, like, he's supposed to still be doing his regular job, right? Right. How is he doing all of these, like, undercover missions and taking random 10-day vacations yeah. when he's actually got a regular job? Does nobody notice that he's gone doing other things all the time? Or is all this stuff getting handed down from on high through his department and they're just like, that's weird, you got another order from the mayor. I guess <laughs> we'll just do whatever he said. Yeah, like, whatever's happening, 
I would think it's really suspicious, even if they, you know, I know that they split up the department right. so that it'd be rearranged and stuff like that. But I'm like, I feel like you'd notice right. that the other person in your unit isn't doing stuff with you. Or maybe they, the they transferred him to like a shell department so he doesn't actually have a regular day job. It's all it's it's all like informant cops. Yeah, it's a hundred percent undercover, forty hours a week. Mm. We see Danny and his son fishing on the beach, which is not a great place to fish. When he jokes that he's caught a shark, his kid says to let it go. I don't know. I hate to let a shark go. Let him off and bite somebody. I don't care. Let it go. Which I think is supposed to be a crappy metaphor for letting criminals go, even yeah. if they might kill people in the future. Maybe this kid's just a sociopath. <laughs> like, I don't give a shit about people. Let the <laughs> shark go, daddy. That's the right thing to do. Even though sharks kill fewer people than mobsters every year. I don't know if you knew this. And only in the water. Yeah. Mobsters, mobsters aren't effective in the water. <laughs> <laughs> no, mobsters only kill people in the water. I don't think that's true. Cement shoes. They sleep with the fishes. Mm. Hey. I thought you said Troy McClure was dead. No, what I said was he sleeps with the fishes. You see- Ah, Tony, please, no. I just ate a whole plate of dingamagoo. (laughs) Danny's wife reminds him that if he dies in this mission, that her life is over because his former partners will abandon them and she'll have nothing. We get an insert of DEA agent Marcel Sardino's identification and then Detective Gino Moscone's ID. A chapter title reads, But I Never Meant to Hurt Gino. Next, we see Capolino, Paige, and Danny meeting with Mr. Santa Messino, played by, <laughs> played by Bomb Alabama. <laughs> you know, you can say that if you I, said I'm on hey. a warning list now. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you said it was a yeah, it was a movie with that guy Bomb Alabama, I was like, I know who you were yeah. talking about. <laughs> Mr. Santa Messino, played by Bob Balaban, in some sort of palatial estate. I think they're in Washington, D.C., actually, so this must be like a big-time government building. Yeah. But I don't know which one exactly. Santa Messino has plans for an international expansion of the Chase Commission. They read off a list of the amazing catches that Detective Cello has helped coordinate. Santa Messino tells Danny that he wants a plan in place to catch Marcel Sardino, and then he excuses them from the office. After they've left, Santa Messino returns to his desk and opens a file with a list of names. He has check marks next to all of Cello's partner detectives from the SIU, and he adds a check after Danny's name. I don't know what's happening here. Um, I'm assuming that this is a list of people that he wants. But he has a check next to all of the detectives' names now. He just added one next to Danny, and it, it almost implies that he's already met with every other detective in the SIU. Which he clearly hasn't because they've all said many times that they won't meet with anybody else. And none of them do meet with anybody else. Except for way down the line. I don't know. Yeah, I I didn't understand what this list was meant to represent. Next, we see Danny in the suburbs visiting with his friend Gino Moscone. They share fond memories of beating up black people on the clock. He tells Moscone's wife about the funny sound it made when her husband cracked a nightstick over a man's skull. And she pretends to laugh before sneaking away. Danny fishes for info about Sardino, and Moscone gives him a lead to work from. Buddy meatballs. Buddy meatballs. When Danny tells Santa Messino that he has a line on Sardino, he demands to know the name of the detective who hooked Danny up. Danny reluctantly admits that Detective Moscone helped him out, and Santa Messino decides that Moscone is next in line for them to record, because Moscone was never technically one of Cello's partners. He's fair game for the commission, even though he's a close friend. Santa Messino tells Danny he'll have to find another connection if he doesn't want to turn in his friend. We cut to Danny meeting again with De Benedetto, and he pesters the mobster into making a phone call to get Sardino's address. De Benedetto claims that Sardino owes him money too. 
Turns out, though, he's not asking for Sardino's address. He called Moscone directly to ask him to vouch for Danny. And when he gets a hold of Moscone, he basically says, You thought he was going to testify in front of the Chase Commission. It didn't happen. So you deserve all the shit he's giving you. He's a good guy. I told you that before and you didn't believe me. Because by now, this Chase Commission testimony has already come and gone and he wasn't a part of it. They kept him out of it specifically to let things die down. After he hangs up, he walks back to Danny and writes the address that he apparently knew the whole time on a card. How come one phone call gets an address you've been wanting for so long? Well, let's say somebody owed me. <sighs> Goddamn, I'm nervous using anything from you. <laughs> now you know how I feel. So long, scumbag. Danny returns to the Chase Commission headquarters to receive a package of recordings to give to De Benedetto. Unfortunately, when Capolino is putting the tape in the envelope, he also accidentally snatches up a page from his own personal notepad and places the things in the envelope together. When Danny meets with De Benedetto and Allegretti, they find Capolino's notepad in the envelope, and Danny has just given himself away. De Benedetto immediately has Danny by the tie and drags him into the bathroom. He tears off Danny's clothes looking for a wire, but he doesn't find one. He tells Danny that they're going to go outside and pay for their meal and pretend like nothing's wrong, but after that they're leaving together. Danny's federal bodyguards wait in a car outside with at least one local cop named Ernie. Before they leave the diner, Danny takes a moment's opportunity to shove the table over and knock Allegretti and De Benedetto to the ground, and he steals Allegretti's gun and puts both men under arrest. He slowly walks them to the door and shouts for the attention of his entourage, but not only can't they hear him, but they can't see out of the car. The windows are all fogged over until Ernie, the cop that joined their team, gets a bad feeling. Hey, put the damn fog on. I can't see anything. Danny makes his targets put their hands against the wall and frisks them for weapons. Ernie crosses the street to help out just as Allegretti sneaks a gun and Danny tackles both men through a glass door to the ground again. It doesn't look like breakaway glass either. It shatters in long vertical shards. He quickly has backup from Ernie and the fight is over. It bothers me how hard Treat Williams throws the actor playing De Benedetto to the sidewalk because it looks like he just cracks the back of his head hard on the street. I feel like in the restaurant, it doesn't... He, when he tackles these guys at the table, I really don't feel like that was the right move. Like, it seemed weird. Like, I, I mean, I don't think that they were going to kill him. I'm pretty sure they were. They knew that he was recording them. And they were going to do that right there in the restaurant? No, not in the restaurant. That was the whole point. They said, we're going to act normal and we're all going to leave together. Yeah. Was their plan. And he decided that he didn't feel like dying. And so that his plan was that I'm going to make a big scene and try and get to a weapon before you guys can. Even though he didn't bring a gun with him. As soon as he can tell he's lost, Allegretti is asking Danny for mercy. Danny, can, can, can you give me a deal, Danny? I'll try that. Danny drags Allegretti back to the car to arrest him, and he offers Ernie the collar, but even under these circumstances, Ernie refuses to arrest a cop. You want the collar? No, I'll take the walrus, but I won't bring a cop in. Uh, Let the fucking feds do it. They uh, enjoy it. Danny instructs the feds to take Allegretti to the hospital because he's bleeding a lot. He also informs them that they will never back him up again because they've proven themselves incompetent over and over. Danny meets with Santa Messino again, and now that De Benedetto is in custody, they want to make a move on Sardino. Danny thinks Sardino will run for it, but Santa Messina lets him in on a big secret. They already turned Sardino, and they're only arresting De Benedetto to make it look like his cooperation got Sardino arrested. Danny suspects that they intend to use Sardino to set up his friend Gino Mosconi. Danny makes a half-hearted plan to warn Gino about the trap, but his wife reminds him that if he gets caught, it means jail for Danny. 
Instead, she offers to call Gino's wife and warn him against meeting with Sardino before hanging up. She's halfway through dialing the number when Danny stops her. Carla, not on this phone. My phone is bugged. The line hits her like a ton of bricks, and she feels betrayed. What she thought was her private home has been available to the Chase Commission this whole time. I feel like I would have warned her before this moment, not yeah. to make incriminating phone calls on this line, mm -hmm. but hey, that's just me. We cut right to Moscone and Sardino having dinner together. I guess nobody warned him. Yeah. <laughs> Sardino asks for a passport to leave the country, but promises to return later in the month with information on a massive drug operation. Keep in mind, Sardino is already working with the Chase Commission, so Moscone agreeing to this deal will end his career. I'll get the passport. I knew. I knew. You good man. Sardino offers Moscone a cash payment up front, and as they're walking out of the restaurant, Moscone is intercepted by representatives of the Chase Commission. We cut right to Gino in a hotel room, sweating profusely as Santa Messino arranges for him to set up Detective Alvarez. He's instructed to call Alvarez and say nothing more than, the feds are on to us, because they want to hear his reaction to those words. Right off the bat, Gino refuses to play ball. Santa Messino does a terrible job of convincing Gino to follow his instructions. He flat out calls him a whore for breaking the law on a whim in exchange for money from criminals. They give him a moment alone in the room to consider his options, and out in the hallway, Santa Messino finds Dan stepping out of an elevator. Santa Messino tells Dan they require his assistance to get Gino to play along just as a gunshot rings out from across the hall. In the room, they find Gino's corpse holding a gun they didn't find when they searched him on the way in here. Danny sounds on the verge of vomiting at the sight of his dead friend, loving husband and father. We cut to Danny having a chat with Rocky Gazzo. Gazzo basically tells him that he chose poorly with this new chapter of his life and makes him an offer. 75000 to leave the country and another seventy-five to stay gone in exchange for quitting the Chase Commission. Danny turns him down and preemptively threatens Gazzo with retribution if anybody kills him. We cut to another backyard barbecue scene where cops tell unfunny stories and then laugh at them. At least this time, one of the cops points out that the story wasn't funny. What's so funny about that? What's a funny story? Gus stands to fix himself a drink, and Danny launches into another one of his insufferable stories that he can't help laughing the whole way through. For some reason, his friends get real quiet instead of just laughing the whole way through it like they normally do. He's such a bad fucking storyteller that I can barely follow what he's even talking yeah. about. As best I can tell, the funny story is this, and Danny cannot stop laughing from beginning to end. An old cop disarmed a young guy with a knife, but it turns out the arresting officer didn't have a gun or a badge at the time. Get it? Ah, cop jokes. They tell Danny that he should go lay down for a while and relax because he seems distraught, even though this is how he has told every story in the entire film. Before he takes their advice and heads inside, he needlessly reminds them that he had nothing to do with Gino's suicide. I know that sport. Yeah. Christ, Danny, nobody ever thought that. Yeah. Yeah, Danny, why would you even say such a thing? Why would they center this three-hour movie on a successful undercover cop who is the worst liar I've ever seen? Treat Williams is easily the least charismatic person in this movie by a mile. <laughs> but it reminds me of when my kids say something like, I don't have anything behind my back before <laughs> I ask them anything. And it's like, why is one of your arms behind your back? <laughs> The guys all tell Danny that they've heard the rumors about him working for the Chase Commission, but none of them believe it. He immediately confesses to everything he's done. Yeah. And we fast forward to hours later as he assures them that he will never turn on his partners. I wanted absolution. 
I do like the way that they're being so forceful and they're like, nobody thinks he would join the Chase Commission because it seems like they all already know that he joined the Chase Commission and they want him to feel extra shitty about it. So they're like, you'd have to be some kind of fucking asshole to join the Chase Commission. What kind of a fucking moron would sign up? And then he's like, all right, yeah, I did it, guys. Yeah, cut to uh, <laughs> It's Always Sunny. Chillo joins the Chase Commission. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They seem worried he plans to kill himself and ask where his gun is, but when he refuses to give it to them, Gus reminds him that he'll lose his pension for his wife and kids if he takes the easy way out. I also want to think that maybe they wanted his gun so they could kill him with it and pretend like he committed suicide right here. The next day, the story has magically leaked to the papers who are printing photos of Danny alongside the article about his undercover work. I have to assume it was one of his partners here that told the press about it because they were so pissed off. But even so, why would the press run it why would they run this story why would you run a story that would completely destroy an entire investigation right that's ridiculous they would probably be prosecuted for that brooks page calls for danny to be brought into the commission office immediately and sends armed agents to protect his family at home we cut right to the commission office and danny appears in shock his days of setting people up are over and now he will spend a couple years in court testifying against people the commission insists on his relocation and danny mentions offhand that they own a cabin in the catskills because in the 70s and 80s it was common for people to have a second house that they just visited for fun uh, and also no way for somebody to look up that you own additional property right yeah, yeah. you've literally think... never mentioned it once i feel like somebody would look this up and be like oh dude this dude's got a cabin let's yeah. go check Capolino looks to U.S. Marshal Tug Barnes, played by Lane Smith, for approval on this destination. Anybody else know about it? No. Tug? We cut to Danny and Tug in an elevator together, and the framing reminds me a lot of the government agent in charge of relocating the Incredibles whenever oh, yeah. <laughs> Whenever Bob makes an accidental display of his powers. From now on until it's over, it'll be my job to take care of you and your family. You are my job, you understand? Anything worries you, anything you need, anything at all, I take care of. Downstairs in a parking structure, Danny is introduced to agents Ned Chippy and Pete, who have been assigned to his protection detail. As they pull out of the structure, their car is joined by two more cars, and outside on the street, two more cars join the motorcade, so that people can very easily follow this pack of five cars to the right. cabin in the Catskills. <laughs> At the cello household, the family are packed and moved outside, and the cars make it to the cabin in the Catskills by nightfall. The agents here protecting Danny are apparently expected to sleep outside in the freezing cold in tents. All 18 of them. Hours later... Well, they, I would say, shouldn't be sleeping while they're on duty. Yeah. Well, some of them should. <laughs> they do it in a rotation, right? Didn't we learn that in Tuala Goodnight? That uh, one cop sleeps while the other cop eats dinner? what that doesn't make sense hours later mrs cello breaks and invites the men to come in for warmth on a rotational basis even inviting them to use the television in the middle of the night she's crying in bed beside danny and he tells her that in the morning he and the men will be leaving he'll only be here on weekends with her and the family the next morning capolino informs danny that he's been appointed to a cabinet level position and he's stepping away from the commission he assures danny that the cases will go smoothly Danny is given a place to sleep at a building on Governor's Island, which was used for a long time as a military prison. I'm the first to go to prison. We get inserts of IDs for defendants Michael Blomberg and Richard King Lawrence. A chapter title reads, I'm going to spend the rest of my life lying. Next, we see Danny meeting with Mr. Barano, played by Lance Henriksen. 
Barano wants to know the context of some of the recordings of Blomberg, and Danny struggles with specific details, while also eating a sandwich as he speaks. Just fucking put it down and talk and then eat between scenes, my guy. I don't want to hear this chomping. We'll assume that you eat. Yeah. Like, we can suspend this. I don't understand this movie. He hasn't taken a single shit this whole time. (laughs) Another attorney busts in to get Dan's input on another case. They're having trouble transcribing a line from a recording, but people are trying to pull Danny in all directions as they work on dozens of cases simultaneously. Later, as Danny and his wife are hiking through the woods, Danny finally realizes that the defense attorneys might ask questions that force him to incriminate his partners for their corrupt police work, and he doesn't see a way around lying on the stand. Which, as we mentioned at the top of the film, any proven perjury from Danny will invalidate all of his cases. This is why they wanted to know things that you had done that were illegal from the beginning. A gunshot rings out and Danny tackles his wife to the ground. Danny's security team springs into action, but it turns out it was just a nearby kid hunting for squirrels. Later, Paige also informs Danny that he'll be switching departments, but assures Danny that he's in capable hands now. Paige mentions offhand that he needs an undercover cop to take a swing at crime in the garment district. Right away, Danny suggests Gus Levy, desperate to get him out of narcotics in case he has to torpedo that unit on the stand. Paige reminds him that perjuring himself would mean that all of his time and risking friendships has been for nothing and the cases will evaporate. It turns out that's not true in the long run, that he could perjure constantly and it was no risk to anything. Danny sits for a pre-trial meeting with Blomberg's attorney, who starts the conversation by balking at the official story that in 11 years of service, Danny committed a mere three felonies. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not the big-time criminal you lawyers expect cops to be, Counselor. <laughs> make me ashamed I didn't show more initiative. <laughs> Detective Cello is a very charming fellow. I believe we are in a lot of trouble. The attorney asks if he knows a Detective Carey from SIU and insinuates that Detective Carey is willing to rat on Danny's many drug offenses to help free Blomberg and consequently anyone relying on his testimony to be convicted. The attorney introduces a stenographer to take a record of the facts as Danny reports them. On the ferry back to Governor's Island, Danny is surprised alone by his cousin Nick, who confesses he was sent here to kill Danny. You wanted me to do it. I told him no. I said, hey, the kid's my cousin. He's my uncle's son. Tell him no. He convinces whoever wanted him dead that he owed Danny a warning, and this is it. Someone's going to kill him as soon as they get the chance. Danny's security team finally show up, and he introduces them to his cousin. We cut to a courtroom where, as expected, Blomberg's attorney makes Dan recount his three crimes. The man tries to bring other crimes to light, but Dan denies any and all further allegations. At the end of the day, the prosecution throws a big party for Danny because he didn't crack on the stand. We get another montage of exclusively Italian lawyers meeting with Danny to put a series of men behind bars. One day, outside a courthouse, regular stoolie King Lawrence approaches Danny and the security team panic before Danny tells them the guy is okay. King is here to say he can't make ends meet now that everybody's going down. Later, in Santa Messino's office, the team pages through King's testimony of unadmitted crimes perpetuated by Danny as a member of the SIU. The chief prosecutor, George Polito, played by James Tolkien, enters the room. Polito is in charge of the French Connection case, wherein, as we discussed in our review of the film of the same name, 120 pounds of heroin, confiscated by police, were stolen from a police locker and returned to the responsible drug lord after the events of the film. French Connection 2 follows Popeye Doyle back to France in search of the missing score. Uh, Now, why would Santa Messino want to torpedo Danny at this point? When Danny's been helping him build all his cases and all those cases would subsequently be destroyed 
by destroying Danny. I don't think he does want to destroy Danny. Okay. Because I, I got the feeling that Santa Messina was willing to completely willing to turn on Danny. And I, I, like, I do feel like he's sense. he's forcing Danny to testify against people that he doesn't want to testify against. But he's not trying to get him to perjure himself. He's just trying to break the man down because he wants to get as much out of him as he can. Polito promises to take down the whole SIU if that's what it takes to find the responsible parties. King's testimony makes mention of Danny's habit of paying with drugs for information, and only now does Danny realize that King is trying to pin the French Connection ripoff on Danny's team specifically. He responds with his trademark believable denial screeching. Does the King suggest that I was involved in the French Connection ripoff? Dan flips out in front of everyone and starts screaming a lot of nonsense, a sure sign that he's an innocent bystander in this case. Barano worries aloud that if any of these allegations are proven, their cases die, but Santa Messino points out that it's King's word against Danny's. Nobody else has come forward with anything. He suggests a lie detector test to prove King is bullshitting them and invalidate the only case against Danny. King's deposition makes mention of Jose, Sancho, and Jeannie, who we saw Danny supplying with drugs at the beginning of the film, but he continues to deny, deny, deny. When they announce the plan to put King on a lie detector, Danny makes maybe the dumbest offer so far. Why don't you just ask me to take that test, huh? Yes, I'd like to know the answer to that. Why haven't you? Would you? Fuck you all. Why did you volunteer for a lie detector test yeah. and then get mad at them for asking you to take it? Literally, the only reason to do this is to remind them that you are guilty and lying. They didn't even ask you to take the test and you made them ask you so that you could refuse. Yeah. The only other possible explanation is that he thinks a lie detector test would be a fun game and he's jealous that they're going to test it on someone else instead of him, but immediately realized he would fail the shit out of it. The next morning, garbage men swing by Nick's place to take the trash out, and one of the barrels seems super heavy until the top pops off and they find Nick's body inside. Luckily, he seems fine, because his eye is twitching like crazy, but I think the actor is supposed to look dead here. Insanely, when Danny finds out what happened, he expects to be welcomed into Nick's funeral. And of course, he shows up drunk, but his father is waiting outside to tell him what any reasonable person would have guessed. The family of the cousin you got killed don't want to hug you today. Danny, you can't come in, Danny. Nick's family, they don't want you. But also, that's an incredibly dangerous place for you to go. Yeah. Yeah. Should not be there. Yeah, and drunk? And why did they bring you here drunk? Why did your wife agree to come to this funeral with you drunk? If I was his wife, I would be like, you're wasted. I'm not going to that funeral. For the guy you got killed? No. No. Full of people that might want you dead. Yeah, for sure want you dead. We see Danny's brother Ronnie leaning against the outside of the mortuary and a smile creeps across his face. I think because he's happy to finally see his brother as a broken man after a decade of deserving it. Mrs. Cello has to walk Danny back to the car because he can barely stand up straight. Back in the cabin, Tug Barnes tells Danny's family that they're moving again to a better place, free of charge. They're driven to a lovely two-story home in the suburbs and Mrs. Cello cries at the sight of it. Oh my god, Danny. That's We cut to King taking a lie detector test and failing it miserably. Danny breathes a sigh of relief and walks out of the room. They all seem convinced that Danny has been vindicated. Danny is followed out by another attorney who wants to speak with him. They ride together in a car and then neighboring plane seats. Yeah. But I don't think it's made super clear who this guy is or what he wants. Not yet, anyway. Danny just talks instead of waiting for the guy to ask anything. 
Eventually, he asks what the guy wants, and the guy says his name is Mario, and he just wants to be Danny's friend. Who the fuck is this guy? Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess he's another attorney on his side. But we don't see a specific case that this guy is tied to. Right. And it seems like he's he literally just wants to be Danny's friend. It's just like, should we add a 105th character for no particular reason? Yeah, let's do it. We cut to an ID card for Detective Dom Bando, Joe Marinero, Bill Mayo, Gus Levy, and Daniel Cello. The chapter title reads, Nobody Loves You But Your Partners, and this is the entire SIU team now. We cut to the district attorney's office, where Mr. Cantor screams at a table full of men for a list of dirty cops they can bring in. He's literally going through the force alphabetically, so Raph Alvarez is the first cop dragged in. Seems like Alvarez is quick to admit stuff. They stole narcotics evidence and sold it. They sold prisoners their freedom. They stole from dealers. He also confesses to at least 20 instances of perjury and then makes fun of them for trusting anyone on the stand like a bunch of morons. He tells them that if he didn't commit perjury, they would never get any criminals off the street and they just have a jail full of cops who'd committed illegal searches and seizures, which defeats the whole purpose of having cops in the first place. He punctuates the whole speech by emphasizing that he's willing to admit all these crimes, but asserts he had nothing to do with the French Connection ripoff. He tells them to look closer at Cello, but admits he has no evidence against Cello. But he's heard some things about Cello's pal Gus Levy. Can you give us any evidence against Levy? Maybe. Later, outside the courthouse, Mario tells Danny that Alvarez is turning over dirt on Gus Levy, and Danny immediately ditches his security detail to run straight to the garment district and warn Gus in person. Because Gus is undercover here, Danny has to use a fake name to drag him out of the warehouse for a chat. Gus seems well informed about his former partner Alvarez being a squealer. I wasn't sure what Gus was doing here. I thought that this was his retirement gig. No, this is him pretending to manage this place. Because he seems really good at it. Yeah, that's I think well, that's he, that's he part of the joke. He says something about that yeah. too. But and he says like yeah after this job I'm gonna keep the costume like I, I like this yeah. outfit and and it, it does seem like he pays attention to the details here yeah like like the one guy is like he never takes a full load right yeah <laughs> it's just like how how deep in this are yeah. you the conversation is punctuated with amusing little details to indicate Gus is taking his cover very seriously and he's bothered by the way his warehouse staff are half-assing the work here a man rolls a half cart of coats past them none of a bitch never takes a full load when they're finally somewhere private Danny gets more blatant. Alvarez is going to set Gus up for the French Connection ripoff. Over the course of the chat, it seems clear that the two of them and possibly more men in the SIU pulled off that heist together, but unless they turn each other in, there's nobody to testify against them with direct knowledge of what happened. But we don't know Yeah. as the audience. Mm -hmm. that, that It bothers me a lot that over the course of this story that we aren't privy to this information that seems like it should inform our opinion of what's yeah. happening. We cut to Polito's office where a man is invited into the room and he spits in Danny's face and then leaves. Polito asks if Danny recalls the details of that man's case. Yeah, he, and and the, and uh, God, Treat Williams' performance in this is like, he comes in here and he spits in my face. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's like, so what cheesy is and this? corny and weird. It was a very sweet bust. He's a Lebanese dealer. We arrested him. He offered us 5000 And we added attempted bribery. The man claims that the four main detectives of the SIU took $400 off of him and split it four ways. 
Polito doesn't buy Danny's latest denial for whatever reason, and assumes he can make an indictment stick on one or more of the other SIU detectives, even though all he has now is the word of a convicted drug dealer. Yeah. Like, why would that stand up in court? Danny assures Polito they won't cooperate. And he nearly all of them will cooperate. They're cops. In their hearts, they want to admit their guilt. That's the way cops are. That's how you got here. Don't you understand that? Gus is getting called in first and promises Danny he won't talk, and Danny promises the same. When Gus walks into Polito's office, he tosses the man's desk backwards against the wall yeah. and threatens to throw him out the window for wasting his time. Polito says he'll take Gus to court if he has to, and Gus says, fucking do it. But not for a lousy $400. At least get me for assault. <laughs> At home later, Danny tells his wife that things are getting worse. Gus is about to be indicted for whatever they can make stick. Later, Danny meets with Mario, who advises him to do what Polito says. His cop buddies all hate him now, and he's out of alternatives. Danny repeats what he said all along, that he refuses to turn on his partners. Mario assures Danny repeatedly that turning on his partners is his last and only option to avoid going to jail with them. Amazingly, in less than five minutes, Mario gets Danny to relent. We got to another dark office where Danny finally admits to the full breadth of his crimes. Right off the bat, he explains that, no, he had nothing to do with the French Connection ripoff. So I guess he didn't? Because I, I don't know. it seems like this is supposed to be the actuality of him coming clean, and he says he had nothing to do with that. So I don't know if he's sticking to his deal with Gus, or if they, for no reason, let us believe that they committed that together, and he's lying now. But he did offer drugs to informants because that was the only way he knew to get reliable information from them. Under the law, a gift of narcotics is the same as a sale. I know the law. The law doesn't know the streets. He tells them about the bust from the beginning of the film, and they ask who was a part of it. He proceeds to name all of the detectives in the SIU. His confession regarding the bust is that in addition to the five kilos of heroin they found, there was a briefcase containing $92,000. The detectives took half the cash for themselves and split it five ways, hence the fancy dinner and celebration that night. One of the men asks why it wasn't split four ways between the detectives who found it, because Bando was outside serving as a tail, but they always split the take evenly and never cheat anybody. Danny asks for permission to bring Bando in to corroborate his testimony, but Bando is terrified to do it because he never even went in on these busts. He doesn't think it's fair that he should be held equally accountable, in which case he probably should have refused his share of the prize, too. Yeah. Danny suggests Marinero as a second target for corroboration, and then potentially Mayo. The three of them together should be enough to close the case on the SIU. Danny calls Marinero and admits what he has done. Marinero doesn't sound surprised, just defeated and disappointed. Danny begs his handlers for permission to tell Mayo in person what's going on, but they insist that he do it over the phone for his own safety. He calls Mayo, and their conversation sounds almost robotic. Yeah. It's completely removed from any emotion, because otherwise I think they'd both break down crying. Uh, Bill, we gotta talk. There's nothing to say, Danny. You're gonna name me, right? Right. Danny assures Mayo that there's still room to make a deal to protect himself if he's willing to come in. It doesn't sound like Mayo has an alternative. Next on Danny's phone tree is Gus, and considering he spent the entire movie promising over and over that he would never rat on him, this will undoubtedly be the most painful phone call. Mayo doesn't wait for Danny to call Gus on his own time. He phones him immediately to spill the beans. Gus seems to have seen it coming. Mayo drives himself to the offices where he agreed to roll over on his fellow detectives, but instead of testifying against them, he puts a gun in his mouth at the curb and blows his brains out. 
Danny's in the process of detailing other crimes of the SIU team when word reaches them that Mayo has committed suicide. Danny hears what happened and breaks loose from his security team to wander out on a footbridge over the train tracks. He's a weaselly loser and he doesn't have the guts to jump. To hammer home that he has missed his chance at suicide, a train passes underneath him. Danny heads out to Marinara's home with a security detail and breaks the news himself that Mayo has committed suicide. Marinero wanders to the back of his fenced-in yard and screams to the heavens. <laughs> Next, Danny goes to visit Gus in person to urge him to come in and testify. Gus reminds Danny that he's not going to fucking do that regardless of what it means for him. Gus is resisting the urge to strangle Danny right now because his guards are apparently waiting outside. Gus has no intention of playing by their rules and refuses to surrender control of the situation. Marinero has chosen the cello path over the mayo path and comes into the office to testify. Danny takes him under his arm and excitedly shares that Gus will not be following suit. He refuses to kill himself or rat on cops, and he's going to stay out and force them to bring charges. He takes up. It's fucking fantastic, man. Somebody's telling him to go fuck themselves, you know? One of us. It's clearly not one of you guys, because you yeah. guys are not that person anymore. As they part ways, Danny begs Joe not to hate him, and he says he never could. Later, in U.S. Attorney Charles Duluth's office, he and the other relevant higher-ups from the Chase Commission deliberate on whether to bring charges against Danny Cello in spite of all he's done for them. Cello's newest confessions represent clear perjury and could tank the cases against Blomberg and others. Among these men, Capolino alone is flabbergasted that they would consider sending Danny to jail after all the evidence he's provided, forgetting apparently that he just tainted it all with his admission of perjury. We are intercutting this decision being made behind closed doors and Danny's testimony on the stand during Blomberg's trial. I guess retrial. Retrial, right, because he demanded a retrial in the light of King's deposition that he had committed all these other crimes right. that he didn't admit to. Danny is admitting to having tried various drugs he claims to recognize the effects they have on people. On top of getting Danny to admit the use of narcotics, they also get him on the record admitting to frequenting brothels while on duty. It's weird that these details are coming up for the first time yeah. in the last 10 minutes of the movie. Back at the closed door meeting, Paige makes the case that cops break rules all the time and they just have to deal with it because there's no way to make cops better at their job. A popular theory even today. He points out that Danny took a big risk endangering his entire career by coming in. Mario makes the claim that they're all as guilty as Danny because Danny is a shitty liar and they all knew he was lying the whole time, but they let him do it because it was helping their cases. He alleges that Cello was trying to right some of his own wrongs and the rest of them used him unfairly. If they send this cop to jail, they'll never hear from another one, on the record, and Mario claims that he will tender his resignation immediately. Blomberg's lawyer ends his questioning with a powerful line. Did your wife know? And we cut to post-trial as Danny vomits into a bathroom sink. The decisions against Blomberg and Cello are scheduled to be handed down almost simultaneously. And it's all good news. The government declines to prosecute Detective Cello. And I find the additional testimony of Lieutenant Cello as to his own misdeeds collateral, apart from the central issue. The conviction of Michael Blomberg stands. We jump forward in time as Danny is invited to speak with a class of recruits in the academy. Immediately after he's introduced himself, a student raises their hand and asks for some confirmations. Are you the Detective Cello? I'm Detective Cello. I don't think I have anything to learn from you. 
The student stands and walks out of the room to avoid being lectured by a guy who rats on cops. And then we freeze frame on a derp face. Yeah, he's just like, oops. Like, it's a really awkward, uncomfortable face. And mm-hmm. he's just, like, half embarrassed. And we freeze on that, and then the credits roll. That's the end of our film. Uh, this was almost three hours long. This is yeah. so long. It's too long. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't matter in it. Yeah, it it could have been great had it not just dragged on and treat Williams' weird performances. There, there's a scene where he... He grabs on to Mario, like he's like, like he's strangling him, but he's strangling him from his collarbone. Right. Yeah. yeah. And and he's just like gripping him. And they're all freaking out. Like I don't understand what's happening. Because I I didn't yeah, understand what was happening. <laughs> I yeah. Was like, I don't think the actors were prepared for this motion either. Yeah. I was like, is he trying to strangle him? I don't know what he's trying. He's just to do. freaking out. Well, but, you want, you want to know how long and annoying this movie was? How long and annoying? In order to avoid finishing it, I mopped the living room. There you go. That tells you how it much looks great. I didn't want to yeah. watch this movie because I, I did it. something else I really didn't want to it's, do instead. It's real <laughs> slow, and Treat Williams cannot carry a movie this long. Yeah. he's, And he's also, so many scenes feel really redundant. We have multiple scenes where he goes and tells Gus, hey, things are going bad. You better get ready. And Gus tells him, I'm not going to tell anybody anything. That happens like four times in this movie. And every scene is just him telling people, cops have it so hard, but we got to do these things. And they're all like, yeah, we do. And you better not tell anybody. And then he's like, I told everybody. I told everybody all all the things. The end. (sighs) This movie was exhausting. But in the true story, Cello is the good guy, though. That's That's what bothers me the most is that it, the movie makes it out to be Cello is a complete fuck up. He ruined his family. He got all of his friends arrested. They all went to jail. Everybody in the movie seems like a good guy except for him at yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. But he's the only good guy in this movie. Everybody else is shit. Everybody else is terrible. And mm-hmm. they're tricking people into killing themselves and and providing drugs to these terrible, like, downtrodden people. And, and this one guy decided that he was going to try and turn his life around. But... Again, they don't explain that well enough why he suddenly decided he was going to be a good guy. Yeah, it it it, it made no sense. Like I said, the, it should felt like it should have been an older character, not a younger character. Or just someone who didn't feel so like con manny because he seems like a liar on purpose. Like they wanted him to not be believable when he says things. And I know that that's part of that is in service of that last line from Mario where he says, "We knew he was lying this whole time and we let him do it." because it served our needs but it's like if this had been a charismatic actor like a john travolta or an al pacino or a robert de niro yeah then the whole time you would have been like okay yeah like maybe you saw through that lie i didn't see through it but the point of it would have been this guy is facing these insurmountable odds and there's so much pressure on him but treat williams just totally overacts every moment in this film and uh it's difficult to watch because it, it takes you out of the movie when he gets too energetic about mm-hmm. it. And it's such a highly rated movie. It really is. And I think even Sidney Lumet uh, prizes it among his his films that he, he thinks that this he's, he's happy with the way this turned out. It's not like I expected to read. I literally expected to read that he was really disappointed with what happened with this movie that Treat Williams like ruined it. And that was not the case at all. That Everyone was very happy with how it turned out. But it's it's bizarre. I, I did not I, it was it's not for me and there's a so 
last week we had too many people in Honky Tonk Freeway. Yeah. There's 105 speaking roles in this. There's 126 in this movie. <sighs> I mean, it's another hour longer, but it could easily have been shorter than that. You can cut all these. There's there's three characters playing the part of one. You have Mario and you have... Capolino. Uh, Capolino and you have Paige that are all the same character. They're all just the guy holding the leash at the commission. That could have been one guy. The whole SIU unit could have been one other guy. There's no reason right. for it to be five guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I get that you're, I guess they're trying to be accurate to the story, but you trim things Yeah, for for time and for interest. And I feel like they they felt like they had to flesh out every possible. So they were like, well, we mentioned Sancho and Jose and, and Jeannie at the end. And it's like, yeah. well, we better add 20 minutes to the beginning of the movie to explain who all those three yeah. people are. And it's like, no, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Just use three names. I'll just assume they're people that you paid in drugs. Well, And, and then when Gino gets introduced, it's like, who the hell is Gino? Who is yeah. this guy? Why is he suddenly so important to you? And and also, why why are we going the, the distance to explain who Jeannie is like Jeannie is yeah. the girlfriend of an informant who he pays in drugs, but we don't explain any of like what comes out at the end that he's been going to whorehouses and paying for women to have sex with him on the clock. And it's like, that seems like something you should have at least hinted out earlier. Yeah, that's you didn't never... need to flesh out all this other stuff, but yeah, it's weird. And I, I didn't really care for it. I'm, I'm going to say this one's a thumbs down for me. It's a thumbs down. It's a thumbs down for me. I, I, I had to watch it in three sittings. Yeah. It, and it w- took a while. I, th- I think if this was De Niro, this would still be like a well-remembered movie. Mm-hmm. I think the whole thing hinges on his performance. And yeah. I think that's what takes this down. Um, what are we thinking letterboxed? Well, that's what's tricky is that I don't feel it was a badly made movie. No, no. It's it's competent. It's just not uh, not exciting. Jess, what are you thinking? Uh, I have it at number 97 out of 113. All right. It is below Tarzan the Ape Man and above Savage Harvest. Okay. And just to emphasize the fact that I never want to watch this movie again. Sure, yeah. yeah. Very similar to last year's movie with Sidney Lumet. There are very few <laughs> three-hour movies that I'm excited to watch a second time. I mean, that that's that's much. I'm two for two on not liking Sidney Lumet movies, though. Well, it's also crazy because this came at the end of a string of just endlessly beloved Sidney Lumet movies and and then he it basically died with just tell me what you want and everything after that is like eh okay I mean the verdict is his next one which is um, one of the more celebrated ones but it's not network or the whiz <laughs> that yeah. people like really love Richard what do you think um I also have this below Tarzan and the ape man uh Tarzan the ape man sorry and the ape man was there an ape man I would love that uh so that puts it at number 52, uh, Blow Tarzan and Above Deadly Blessing. All right. I have it at 56 out of 113. That's just under The Legend of the Lone Ranger and just above Nice Dreams. I put it way lower than you guys. I guess I just want to sleep when I put yeah, this movie in. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, mine is, it it's, it's just, I, I can't put it too low because, again, I don't feel it was a badly made movie. Yeah. I, I, I the only reason it's above don't want to nice, watch it again. The only reason I have it above Nice Dreams is because uh, Nice Dreams was so like aimless and they really didn't have a plot nailed down. And I'm this, fine this with This felt that. like it at least had an, an outline done. Yeah. 
I think we we mentioned in our nice dreams review that it was like a three page script or something like that's that. That's perfect. That's that's, <laughs> that's just, the sweet spot. That's just perfect. I'd rather watch that. Our writer director here was Sidney Lumet. He directed Twelve Angry Men, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Equus, The Wiz. After this, he does Death Trap and the Gloria remake. Ugh. And we've already seen his work on Just Tell Me What You Want. Writer Jay Presson Allen wrote the screenplay. She also wrote Marnie, Cabaret, Just Tell Me What You Want last season, Death Trap, Lord of the Flies, and uncredited work on The Verdict and Never Cry Wolf. Novelist here was Robert Daly, who wrote the novel adapted into Michael Cimino's Year of the Dragon in 1985. The music here was from Paul Chihara. His first composer credit was for Death Race 2000. He later composes Bad News Bears Go to Japan, the 1978 Doctor Strange TV movie, and The Survivors. The cinematographer was Andrzej Bartkowiak. This was one of his first DP credits. He later lights Death Trap, The Verdict, Pritzi's Honor, Twins, Falling Down, Speed, Species, Jade, and Lethal Weapon 4. Some gold in them there, Hills. He also has a few directing credits, including Romeo Must Die, Doom with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. Yes. This guy walks through the raindrops. Nash out. (laughs) Editor Jack Fitzstevens edited Just Tell Me What You Want last season, and he's back next year for Death Trap from Lumet. Treat Williams was Detective Daniel Cello. Before this, Williams had small roles in Marathon Man, The Eagle Has Landed, Hair, 1941, and The Empire Strikes Back but we couldn't find him in there. Yeah. Last season, he appeared in a film called Why Would I Lie, which until recently I found impossible to locate, but listener Jason caught it on TCM one night and taped it for me. So a minisode of that is coming later this season. We'll also see Treat later this season as Mead in The Pursuit of D.B. Cooper. Honestly, I always think of the substitute TV movie sequels first. Yeah. Which for some reason we had all of at our blockbuster. <laughs> uh, I always go to his role as Drax on in uh, Phantoms. Oh, okay. Or, uh, sorry, The Phantom. Yeah, don't mix those up. Yeah. <laughs> Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, though. <laughs> yeah. Billy Zane was the bomb in The Phantom. Yeah. Treat Williams took over for Behringer in the Substitute series, so that makes him the Substitute Substitute. <laughs> I like to make that joke whenever Treat Williams comes up. Jerry Orbach was Detective Gus Levy. He played Lenny Briscoe in thousands of Law & Orders, probably. <laughs> He's Jake Houseman in Dirty Dancing. He's Lumiere. And the 91 Beauty and the Beast, we have to specify a year now. No. Isn't that great? We saw him earlier this season as Herbert Penlittle in Underground Aces. Richard Ferrangi played Detective Joe Marinero. He's Pletchner in Repo Man. He's Corsaro in Serpico. He's Tony Darvo in Midnight Run. And a Con Ed supervisor in Ghostbusters 2. I think that's one of the guys that's out there in the middle of the street where he's like, where do you think all this is coming yeah. from? The sky? <laughs> uh, he's pretty great in... Um midnight run because it's one of the he's re, he's referred to as one of the moron number one and moron number two from dennis farina oh, okay farangi will be back this season as an ambulance driver in true confessions don billet played detective bill mayo he was philip in ordinary people last season and before that he was a detective in lumet's serpico kenny marino was dom bando not to be confused with ken marino yeah i got super excited when i was, I was like well <laughs> you must be really young he's in this. a baby in this movie in the morning when i rise Uh, This was Kenny Marino's first film, and he's back later for Exterminator 2 and Death Wish 3. Carmine Caridi played Detective Gino Moscone. Weirdly, he plays Carmine Rosati in Godfather 2 and Albert Volpe in Godfather 3. He plays two different characters in the Godfather franchise. Tony Page played Detective Raph Alvarez. 
He was George in Minnesota Hoodlums earlier this season. He, he kind of reminds me of a young Dennis Farina, too. He's like yeah. got a Dennis Farina-shaped head, but it's like dark black hair instead of all salt and pepper. He was in Joel Reed's bloodbath, not to be confused with Mario Bava's bloodbath, a.k.a. A Bay of Blood. We'll see him next in Q the Winged Serpent next season. Oh, next season? I, I wanted to see that movie for so long. 1982. Is that Larry Cohen directed? It's somebody weird. Yeah, I, I can't remember offhand. Norman Parker was the assistant U.S. attorney Rick Capolino. I kept thinking he was a young Michael Gross. Right. And so did somebody else, apparently, because he made recurring appearances on Family Ties as Robert Keaton, brother of Michael Gross and Stephen <laughs> Keaton. He comes back as detectives in Bonfire of the Vanities and The Clairvoyant. Paul Roebling played assistant U.S. attorney Brooks Page. He was Iceland in Blue Thunder, or Iceland, or I don't know how to pronounce this, Ikalon. <laughs> I-C-E-L-A-N, all one word. Bob Balaban played Santa Messino. We had him earlier in our Patreon review of Catch-22, and then as a lab assistant in Altered States. We'll see him later this season in Absence of Malice and Whose Life Is It Anyway? He was Dr. Chandra in 2010, creator of the HAL 9000. His first feature film role was Midnight Cowboy, and his uncle Barney Balaban was the president of Paramount from 1936 to 1964. James Tolkien played assistant U.S. attorney George Polito. He was cast in Zemeckis' Back to the Future as high school principal Strickland on the strength of his performance in this film. He's also Wigan in War Games, Detective Lubick in Masters of the Universe. He actually reunited with Michael J. Fox for a Tales from the Crypt episode, Season 3, Episode 3, The Trap, that Fox directed in 1991. When I was in high school, we watched some kind of, like, video about, like, I can't even remember. It was about supposed to be about documentary about prisoners. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. But then there pops in James Tolkien playing one of the prisoners. I was like... This isn't a documentary. This, this isn't a doc. This is freaking. Wait, was fake. he was he in jail for a while? Maybe I don't think so because I, I I seem to recall him not having displayed his real name there. But I was like, that it made me mad because yeah. I was like, okay, I know who this guy is. This is this is an actor that I know very well <laughs> uh, from from just from Back to the Future at that point in my life. Really, I mean, and and Top Gun, but uh, but I was just like, it, it just made me like super frustrated as a student it was like yeah i thought we were watching something like reasonably like important but now i know that this is fake and that's how isn't... i felt at the end of hangar 18 when it turned out that it wasn't a documentary <laughs> i was like i thought this fucking ufo full of aliens was real steve inwood played assistant u.s attorney mario vincente he's based on rudy giuliani who was long considered one of the good guys <laughs> he plays jesse and staying alive and Francois Lafitte, the guy who makes a softcore porn of Coco in fame last season. We've also seen him in Night of the Juggler and Cruising so far. Lindsay Krauss played Carla Cello. She was Lily in Slapshot. We'll see her next in Lumet's The Verdict and later Krull and The Iceman. So just, she's not... Just Iceman. She's not actually in Krull. She was in it and then they dubbed her out or no, something? No, no. So Lisette Anthony is the physical actress who's playing Lisa or Lisa in the movie Crawl. But they were concerned that there weren't enough Americans in this movie. So she for does just, the voice. Yes. So yeah. Lindsay Krauss provides the uh, the U.S. release version oh, really? of Crawl. <laughs> Are they different other than that? Or is it literally just a voice replacement? It's just her voice replacement. In the U.K., it's, it's Lisette Anthony's voice. That's so weird. She was also Professor Walsh on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Judge Andrews on Law & Order SVU. Matthew Lawrence played Ronnie Cello. 
He was Sal Amato in Eddie and the Cruisers and Ron D'Alessandro in St. Elmo's Fire. His earliest credits are for a nine-episode run as a featured player on season six of Saturday Night Live. This is our second film in a row with a Saturday Night Live player. Do you guys recall the last time we had a Saturday Night Live cast member in a movie? Just say Honky Tonk Freeway. Honky Tonk Freeway. That's right. I'm trying to remember who it was now. The lady at the bank who couldn't cash her check. That's who it was. It's an early, early cast member. One season, single season, I think 80 to 81. It was the first Dick Eppersall season because Lauren Michaels had just left. And this guy, Matthew Lawrence, was on the season before that. Ronald McCone played Nick Napoli. He was Ronnie in Goodfellas and Wise Guy Jerry in Casino. We saw him last as a gangster in Gloria. Ron Carabazzos played Dave DiBenedetto. This was his first credit. He comes back as Jake Mobby in Flashdance, Richie in My Blue Heaven, and Momo in Get Shorty. And his name is almost Don Carabazzos, who is Steve Buscemi's character in Big Lebowski. That can't be a mistake, right? Like, that has to be a, an intentional reference to him. The other weird thing here is that we have DiBenedetto and Allegretti who work together, and the actor playing Allegretti, his name is Tony DiBenedetto. Yeah. So they took one character's name and named him after the other actor. But uh, Tony DiBenedetto is playing Officer Carl Allegretti. His first credit was in Short Eyes. Last season, we saw him in Windows, Defiance, and The Exterminator. And earlier this season, he was in Fort Apache, the Bronx. He's back for Paternity later this season. And beyond that, Raw Deal, My Blue Heaven, again with Carabazzos. And he played Tony on nine episodes of Cheers. Tony Monifo played Rocky Gazzo. We talked about this guy in our Nighthawks review because he appeared in that film as Big Mike and he would go on to produce most of Stallone's films after that. His name was also given to the character played by Joe Spinell in that film because the character was Lieutenant Monifo. Right. Robert Christian played the king. He was Donald the Jealous Boyfriend in Bustin' Loose earlier this season. It's a completely different character, but it's the same yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lee Richardson played Sam Heinsdorf. He was a narrator in Network. He was Anton Bartok in The Fly, Dominic Pritzi, the father of Angelica Houston's titular Pritzi in Pritzi's Honor, and we had him last season as Warden Renfro in Brubaker, who's fired at the start and replaced with Robert Redford. And according to Matt Clark, he likes to bathe in, in beans, right? <laughs> Remember that? They found all the extra food in the, in the house on the yeah, yard, yeah. and he's like, oh, Warden Renfro loved those beans. He used to bathe in the stuff. Lane Smith played U.S. Marshal Tug Barnes. I usually think first of Perry White on Lois and Clark, The New Adventures yeah. of Superman. Uh, but he's also attorney Jim Trotter III in My Cousin Vinny. He's Mayor Bates in Red Dawn, and he's the father-in-law in Son-in-Law. We've seen him so far in On the Nickel, Honeysuckle Rose, and Resurrection. Cosmo Allegretti, again, an actor whose name is reused for a different character. He played Marcel Sardino. He was Carlo Ricci and Sorcerer. He's also Mr. Moose and Dancing Bear on Captain Kangaroo. Ah. He's back for Author Author next season. Bobby Alto played Mr. Cantor. He was Pugnose in Crocodile Dundee. Michael Beckett played Michael Blomberg. This was his only credit other than several special thanks credits between 2013 and 2017, but I couldn't solve that mystery. Peter Friedman played D.A. Goldman. He's Frank Vernon on Succession currently. He's great on that show. We saw him previously in Christmas Evil. He also showed up in a trailer I recently worked on called She Said about the victims of Harvey Weinstein. Peter Michael Getz played U.S. Attorney Charles Duluth. He was Ross in Wolfen with James Tolkien earlier this season, and he's Gramps in Chud. Lance Henriksen played D.A. Barano. Woo! He's Frank Black from Millennium and the X-Files. He's Bishop in Aliens and Wayland in Alien vs. Predator. He's Jesse Hooker in Near Dark. 
He's best known for The Mushroom King in Super Mario Brothers, and we saw him last season in The Visitor as the manager of an Atlanta basketball team, <laughs> who also like has sex with devils or something. Yeah, I can't yeah, yeah. remember. It was weird. Eddie Jones played U.S. Marshal Ned Chippy. He also appeared on Lois and Clark as Jonathan Kent. Last year, he was Officer Curdy in The First Deadly Sin, and we'll see him later as The Watchman in Cue the Winged Serpent, Chief O'Brien in Chud, and William McKenna in Chimino's Year of the Dragon. More recently, he was Malcolm in The Rocketeer, Dave Hooch in A League of Their Own, and Buddy Wallace in Sneakers, three of Richard's favorite movies. Yeah, I like that you said more, more recently. More recently than Chimino's Year of the Dragon. I guess. They're 90s titles. Yeah, but I definitely remember him in Sneakers because yeah. uh, he's the guy who keeps hitting Robert Redford over the head. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Madsen played Agent Bubba Harris. I don't remember a Bubba Harris. That's that's a cool name. I like that. He previously showed up in God Told Me To, The Warriors, and Cassavetti's Gloria. On IMDb, he has mostly stunt credits. Cynthia Nixon was Jeannie. This is her second film after Little Darlings. Later, she shows up in Tattoo this season, and then Amadeus, The Manhattan Project, and as Heather in Adam's Family Values, but she's obviously best known as Miranda Hobbs from Sex and the City, its films, and its recent sequel series, and just like that. She also, I think, recently ran for mayor of New York, but lost. That clip I sent you, you remember? Of Cynthia Nixon? Yeah. No. What was it? It was uh, It was one of those um, old-timey guessing shows. Oh, yeah, where she was a little kid. She was, and she was trying to, yeah, she was lying, and she was doing a really good job of it. Yeah, I guess as a child, her mom worked on a game show, and she was invited to yeah. participate as a kid who was bluffing who they, who they were, mm. and she's just completely adorable on there it's crazy that she did little darlings last year and she's playing this genie character in this because she seems to have aged like seven years between the two films yeah she looked really young in that last yeah and and they make her out to be old enough to you know be probably early 20s to be the girlfriend of this like this user in the in the middle of uh the bronx ron perkins played virginia trooper he was dr mendel strom in spider-man who is the first victim of the Green Goblin. He's also a patient in Endless Love earlier this season. I think the one who's shouting a lot. Lionel Pina, or Lionel Pina, probably Pina. I wouldn't say Pina, if that was, even if that was my name. <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Pina played Frank Sancho. He was loco in Night of the Juggler. He was third teenager after Kevin Bacon's second teenager in Hero at Large. Jose Angel Santana played Jose. He's credited as Ripper in Nighthawks earlier this season. Walter Brooke played Judge, uncredited. He was Mr. McGuire in The Graduate and Captain Theodore Wilkinson in Tora Tora Tora. Peter Costanza played Juror, uncredited. Not many credits I knew, but I'm very jealous of Man Fleeing Marshmallow Man from Ghostbusters. <laughs> Alan King played himself, uncredited. He played the lead in last year's Lumet Allen film, Just Tell Me What You Want. He was a comedian and Friars Club roaster, and he shows up later in Author Author, Cat's Eye, Casino, and Rush Hour 2. Bruce Willis was an extra. Supposedly, Bruce Willis shows up as an extra in the background, and he'll come back next season for another background role as Court Observer in Lumet's The Verdict. You know who Bruce Willis is, so I'm not going to waste your time on his credits. But I, I, I keep trying to picture him of when he had more hair. Well, we last saw him in uh, The First Deadly Sin. Right. Where he was crossing paths with Sinatra, and they would famously share the role of the detective slash John McClane, because Die Hard is a sequel, and people forget that. 
I think that's everything for Prince of the City. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Damien Thorne. As a $5 patron of the show, Damien now has access to 31 full-size 70s reviews and 36 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. For September of 1972... $5 patrons are choosing between the following five titles. Bluebeard, Edward Dimitrik's crime drama based on the old French folktale of a nobleman whose newest wife is invited to enter any room of his castle except one. It stars Richard Burton, Raquel Welch, Joey Heatherton, and Sybil Danning. Fists of Fury, a Hong Kong martial arts film about a student avenging the death of his teacher, produced by Raymond Chow and starring Bruce Lee. Sounder, Martin Ritt's coming-of-age drama based on William H. Armstrong's novel of the same name about the struggle of a young black sharecropper in the Depression-era South. It stars Cicely Tyson, Paul Winfield, and Kevin Hooks. Love in the Afternoon, the sixth and final installment of Eric Romare's Six Moral Tales series, recently remade as Chris Rock's I Think I Love My Wife. Romare's film stars Juju and Bernard and Francois Verley. And Don't Torture a Duckling, Lucio Fulci's giallo murder mystery about a string of child killings in a superstitious town and two people determined to solve them. It stars Florinda Bulkin, Barbara Boucher, Tomas Milian, and Irene Pappas, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this September. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Body Heat, which IMDb describes like so. In the midst of a searing Florida heat wave, a woman persuades her lover, a small-town lawyer, to murder her rich husband. We leave you now with a trailer for Body Heat. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa. And I'm Nick. And we host a podcast called It Takes Two. Where we take two movies with the same plot or premise and watch and review them. Usually they'll be twin films that were released within a year of each other, but sometimes we'll find some more unusual pairings that you might not think are the same film, but we will argue that they are. 
Every episode contains massive, massive spoilers. You can find us on any podcatcher or on our website at ittakes2.co.nz. So come along and check out our podcast if you like rambling and IMDB trivia. Or if you like hearing our weird accents and our weird voices. That no auto-translate can figure out what we're saying. Yeah, hopefully you can. And we hope that you listen to us soon.